If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going through the book of 1 Peter this fall in a series that we're calling Living Hope, a timely theme, really for all times. It seems specifically timely for uh, the current state of our world, and I'm sure uh, the state of your life as you come to church this morning. We are always in need of an encouragement to, to see the power of God in a way that would stir in us living hope. And as we open up this new chapter, we're going to continue the theme. And as I was preparing this message, it made me, it made me think of something that you probably all did this morning at some point. Are you guys familiar with the term the pocket check as you get ready to leave the house and you've got, you know, you're doing your, basically your, uh, your check for everything you need for today. So you probably checked one pocket for your phone, no doubt. And then it was like, do I have my keys? Do I have my wallet? Then those are the, those are the basics. And then you add some other things depending on, you know, the state of your life. Maybe you need some chapstick, maybe you need some gum. I don't know. Hopefully you got everything you needed. But as you do that, you're in a sense getting ready for what you're about to do today. And depending on what the day has for you, what you have planned for the day, you're going to add some things to the list. You know, if you're going to go out to uh, run the trails or go out on a morning jog, you may add uh, some mace to protect yourselves or, you know, a a small little knife so that you can uh, fend off any dangerous people or animals on the trails. Um, And then... Let's just be real, we're in Idaho, so some of you just every day just grab, for, uh, just grab for the Glock, and you just have it, you're ready, it's part of the checklist, you know? And as you prepare, depending on how the day ahead of you looks, you, you grab different things, and no doubt there is a sense in which uh, as things become more dangerous and more tense, you add to your list, and you, in a sense, are going through a little picture of arming yourselves every day you leave the house. You're armed for what is ahead of you. And I bring that up because throughout this entire study of First Peter, we've been studying a letter that was written to a church context where they were living in a very challenging, difficult time of persecution, time where they were out of place. Peter has called them pilgrims and exiles. They're living in a pagan Roman empire with strange beliefs that has made them kind of the oddballs of society. And we finally come throughout all of the encouragement to endure, to have hope that goes beyond the grave, to look to heaven as their final citizenship and destination. We finally come to a place where Peter goes beyond encouragement and says, now arm yourselves. And maybe if you were reading that letter for the first time in the first century, or you've been studying the ways of the Lord, you you may ask yourselves, when do we get to the point where we're actually going to get ready for an actual battle that we may face in our world? When do we get to actually arm ourselves? And like all things in the kingdom philosophy, uh, Peter does not tell them to arm themselves with a sword. He doesn't tell them to pick up uh, a weapon or get ready for a physical fight with their neighbors or the government that they're living under. Uh, Read with me in chapter 4, verse 1, as we consider now Peter telling them to get ready and to arm themselves. He says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." Peter 
is exhorting them, encouraging them to get ready for what the outside world of tension and persecution and reviling and evil speaking and their misfits in society. And he says, this is what you have to arm yourselves with, the mind of Christ. And it's important for us to hear that for our day as well. I think you come into a setting like this and it can become very religious very quickly. And religion so often can turn into duty and teach you how to live out with behavior. But before any of that happens, it is always a flow from your beliefs. When we are being called to follow Christ and to live for him, we're not just called to live out an application that looks very dutiful. Being a Christian is to adopt a philosophy. To follow Jesus is a, to learn how to think like Jesus. And throughout this letter and throughout the New Testament, we, we learn of a way of the Lord that begins with how we view everything in our mind. And from your beliefs, follow your behavior. And so Peter says to these people, as they go through persecution, he says, as you go through suffering, and as you go through the world that you live in, the way that you prepare yourself for whatever the day has and whatever your government or your workplace or your marriage or your neighbors can throw at you as a believer in a non-believing world, you have to get ready by the way you think. And it is just as true now as it was then. As we come here, there is no sense in telling each one of you what to do and how to live before you understand that to follow Jesus is to follow the Christ philosophy, to have the mind of Christ. So this morning, we're going to study this passage of scripture, and Peter's going to point out a few ways for the people then and us now to have a mind like Christ so that everything we go through, when it is time to act out behavior, we have the proper belief around it. And he starts with what we already read. At one of the themes of the book. In fact, this theme exists more in 1 Peter than anywhere else in the Bible. What is your belief? How do you think about suffering? And he says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. Think about your challenge and your trial. As you suffer, the way you get through it with your behavior is to have an identity in the belief of what suffering is doing in your life by looking at the example of how Christ thought about suffering. And this is an important thing to get right. You have to have a worldview about suffering. This is not an exhortation for those of you who believe because the Bible gives us some things to think about for suffering. This is one of those realities of life that whether you call yourself a Christian or religious or a non-believer or an atheist, you have to have a worldview of how you think about suffering. The problem of pain is not just a problem of how we respond to a good God in a very evil world. The problem of pain is we have to live in this reality and we have to have a way that we're thinking about it so that we make sense of it so that we know how to navigate it. It's not a question of if you suffer, it's a question of when. Some of you are listening to this and I'm gonna give you an exhortation for today in current trial and current difficulty. And some of you are going to listen to this and within a day or a month or a year, you're going to need to have a worldview about suffering for your own life. And so what is the mind of Christ for suffering? How, did we, how do we get the example of Christ in suffering? Well, he says, therefore, which means that uh, part of this thought is coming from what we studied in a previous section of scripture from last week. And it takes us right back to chapter three, verse 18, where 
Peter is exhorting the, the, the church to live out righteous suffering, and he gives the perfect example of righteous suffering through Christ. In verse 18, he said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So verse 18 is the flow that gives us the therefore have this mind in you that Christ had. One of the biggest challenges in suffering when you go through difficulty in trial is to try to make sense of your life and why it's happening to you. So you have to go through the pain of losing a loved one, uh, the challenge of a health diagnosis, the difficulty of tension in the world that you live in. And when you have a mind for suffering that uses the example of Christ, look what Peter gives us as to what Christ's mind was for suffering. It says that he suffered once for sins, chapter 3, verse 18, the just, meaning Christ, who knew no sin, became sin. He never fell into the temptation to actually sin. All of his suffering was righteous suffering for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Here is an amazing reality of how we navigate suffering as believers. Suffering is never self-focused when we suffer according to the will of God. There is a purpose in the suffering of Christ that had nothing to do with his personal sanctification. He was perfect already. It had nothing to do with his personal aim to reserve a spot in eternity. He was sinless. He came from heaven. He was returning to heaven. His suffering was a suffering that brought us to God. So before we go any further as to how we can be encouraged for our trial, as we think through the flow of this week and the spirit of the air is going to be a, a, a heart of thanksgiving. We study this morning the foundation for all thanksgiving. And I know that this can be, as all holidays, they don't, they don't line perfectly. Thanksgiving does not line perfectly with all of the ways that you're being blessed all the time. There are times where you have to gather around a table in the midst of trial and difficulty and suffering. But... For all of us who came here singing the praises of God and are going to leave here remembering his cross, we re are reminded through this passage again today that God sent his son into the world to suffer for us that we would be brought to God. We, we are standing in scripture on the foundation of all praise and all glory and all thanksgiving unto God that God so loved you and me and this world that he sent his son into the world to suffer, to pay the penalty of sin, which was death, so that we could live. So happy Thanksgiving, all of you who believe. Your foundation is how good is God, how amazing is Christ, and from there you can count your blessings. And it also gives us a paradigm for our suffering. Our suffering begins to make sense when we realize that God is using our lives for more than our own lives. Our suffering begins to make sense when we have a new view, the mind of Christ, that it does not have to only serve our lives. That suffering should never be self-focused. Here's uh, a timely devotional from Oswald Chambers, Utmost for the Highest, November 5th devotional. 
He said this, if you are going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They were meant to make you useful in the hands of God and to enable you to understand what transpires in other souls so that you will never be surprised at what you come across. Christ's suffering is our salvation. And your suffering is my encouragement. When the body of Christ suffers together, there is a point of the suffering that one member is going through, but it is for the usefulness of God's glory for the whole body. And I get to experience this firsthand any time that I do a God-honoring, life-well-lived, now-in-glory funeral. You get to see the power of those who suffer but worship through tears. And there is maybe no more, there's not a richer time of worship than when you are worshiping and gathering with those who are mourning the loss and trusting the Lord. When people are going through real-time suffering and God is using it, as, as Peter will say in chapter one, to prove the genuineness of their faith. When suffering strips away all temporary hopes and all temporary gods and there is nothing left but the glory of God and the hope of heaven and when people are actually in the trenches of suffering and worshiping, it is for the glory of God for the body of Christ. And so your suffering is not your own. Your suffering is the hand of God blessing his people and none of us should be surprised when the next person has to go through Something that God has given grace that someone has already gone through in our body. Here's what Romans says. We also, Romans chapter five, glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation or trial or suffering, insert your specific trial, what it's doing in your life, it is producing perseverance. You wanna see what enduring faith looks like? Watch someone go through trials. It also produces in you character. You want to see people who have been qualified to represent the character of Christ? They're the people who have proved their faith through the fiery trial. And on the other side, they're honoring God and they're still worshiping regardless of their circumstances. And this is what else it produces. Hope. There's no greater display of hope than when the body of Christ is being comforted by the Holy Spirit through the suffering of a believer. And we use all sorts of titles that are appropriate and specific at times, but there's much greater examples of them. So one of the, the titles that you'll hear in, in church culture or the way we organize our church is worship leader. You just saw him up here singing songs. He was a worship leader in the specific application of worship by song, because he can play guitar well. This is Seth. So Seth, if you're listening, I'm talking about you. Um, and Gianna was singing along with him and they've, got, they've been given the gift of, of being good musicians so they can lead us in that specific Sunday morning corporate gathering of worship. Of course, worship goes far beyond that. And if you really want to see someone lead the body of Christ in worship, where we can see their example as a call for us to trust God, Spend time with someone who is worshiping through tears and is worshiping through pain and is trusting God in the midst of the trial and you will see on display the hope of glory. This is now to, to bring us back to the armor of Christ in, his, in the way we think, we have to rethink suffering. 
when suffering comes into our lives, we have to have a renewed mind and get the example of Christ that it was not suffering that was self-focused. It was suffering on behalf of those that we bring to Christ. Christ's suffering is your salvation. My suffering, your suffering, is our encouragement. That's a new way of thinking. That's the mind of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit giving us the ability to see things and believe things that will enact in us an endurance and a hope. But then he goes on to say, another way to think, to be armed with the mind of Christ. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I think one of the benefits of this entire passage of scripture being thought through with the armor of the mind of Christ is in one sense, the reality that to, to really allow the word to come alive, you have to think about it. What is this saying? This requires some deep thought. And I think we have to also point out what it's not saying, because if you just read this, it almost appears as though if you've accepted the suffering of Christ as salvation of your soul, then you should no longer sin. And one of the marks of someone who is, is a born-again believer is that they're perfectly and without sin following Jesus. And I, I can assure you, if that is your first read of this, grace for you, that is not what it's saying. I can assure you because I was reminded of my own sinful way on the way to church this morning. You know, anytime you got to drive in traffic, you traffic, you're reminded that there's this dirty sinner that lives inside of you that wants to honk the horn. And you all probably, I think Sunday mornings are the best time for you to be reminded that you're a sinner because you're about to come into the place to get refreshed and renewed and come boldly into the throne room of grace. So grace to all of you who are fighting on the way to the church and yelling at your kids and you know, screaming at the dog. You're, you're not fully ceased from sin and that's okay because what I think this is actually saying is that when you do accept the suffering of Christ, the salvation of your soul, there is a line in the sand and a stand that you take against the relationship that you once had with sin. There is a renewal of your mind to think through unrighteousness and sin in a whole new way. In Galatians chapter five, it says, those who are Christ's, you've partaken in the suffering of Christ, have crucified the flesh with passions and desire. There is a, a point at which you desire to cease sinning. I was mindful of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I love the verse when Paul is, it's the love chapter, and Paul's going through all of the ways that, you know, in heaven you'll be perfect and complete, but you're still growing. And in heaven, it's like, finally, we can put away earthly things and enjoy perfection of eternity. And to give the example, he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So too it will be with our earthly priorities and things. And so here's an updated version of us thinking through this. And surely you've, gone a, you've taken a step towards the ceasing of sin as you've accepted the free gift of salvation in Christ. When I was a sinner, I spoke like a sinner. I understood like a sinner. I thought like a sinner when I was born again. I put away sinful things. To have a renewed mind in Christ is to have a renewed mind of what you're actually living for. And now Peter will go into that further. I'm mindful of the example as we think of Jesus in his relation to sin and the ceasing of sin. 
how often he interacted with people who desired to follow him and there was a mark, a, a line in the sand that he would say, to follow me, give up your old life. Stop sinning. Uh, the, the John chapter 8 story of a woman caught in adultery. I mean, that is the, the sin of sins of the day. And as she's caught in adultery, she's brought before Jesus and they ask him what he should do with her. Of course, he says famously, he who is without sin cast the first stone. He draws a line in the sand. What he drew and what he wrote, we don't know, but it's a beautiful picture of ceasing sin and following Christ. It says that in verse 10, when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those who accuse you, or accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Those who have taken part in the suffering of the flesh cease to sin. They're no longer actively engaging in a lifestyle of sin, and now they are walking in the light, for which we will continue to hear this message, to continue to be cleansed in the process that the Bible calls sanctification, until we have died and we cease for, from sin forever. But now the process is, we continually desire to cease from sin. That is one of the missions that we're on. Every time we open the word, we're trying to understand more how it points us to righteousness and exposes our desire for sin and things that we can repent of. So we have a renewed mind for sin. And then it says in verse two, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We have a renewed mind for suffering and a renewed mind for sin. And we have a renewed mind or an armored mind of Christ for who we're actually serving. And the verse, as you read it again and you go through the scripture, it, it's not, it doesn't use the word who you're serving. But it does point out a, a, a reality of the soul that you are not a neutral agent in who you're living your life for. It's not as though you get to, you know, decide to live the will of God uh, or, you know, there's some sin that you could, you could fall into or you can just follow a middle road where there's something that you're just carving out on your own. You're either following and pursuing the lusts of the flesh in sin or you're following and pursuing the will of God in the sanctification process. That is the line that divides every sanctuary, every believer, and every day of your life. And Peter is now saying, let's think differently about what it is we're serving with our lives. The great theologian, I love how he puts it because he puts it to song. And when there's a song, you just remember it better. But Bob Dylan, I'm sure you remember the song. You're going to have to serve somebody. You don't, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve someone. There is no one that is non-religious in the sense that they are either falling prey to the flesh and what it's desiring to have you do, instincts of, of humanity, or you're living out the will of God. And as we think through this, Peter in the next verse is going to give a list of things to reject, but the, the dirty secret of hardening your heart to a, a call to righteousness, because it's, again, it, this can sound like a religious message. We're going to live for righteousness. We're going to repent of sins. Some of you are coming and being like, wow, does it get more religious than this? 
Well, the reality is it doesn't take long to realize that if you're not living in the will of God, you actually do become a slave to your own desires. The lust of the flesh, it's like a Netflix subscription. The first two weeks are free. And then you got to start paying and you got to start living out. Paul says in, the, in Romans chapter seven, why do I do what I don't want to do? And surely you have all felt that even as you debate whether or not you want to live for the will of God, there are things in your life that you're dealing with that you wish you weren't. And the lust of the flesh is fun for about 15 minutes. And then it's not. And as we think through the, the week that we're about to approach, I, I can't help but think of a lesson that you'll all learn and how quickly the lust of the flesh turns on you. Um, on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, it is one of those days that we allow the flesh to have its way, don't we? No matter how disciplined you are in eating, unless you're like ultra marathon disciplined eater, on Thursday, Thanksgiving, we all give our, our flesh just a green light. I mean, most of us eat at like 2 p.m. so that you have four hours of dessert afterwards. It's, and I, I do this every Thanksgiving. Every Thanksgiving, I think, I don't want to oversnack and then overeat and then get, you know, totally carved out through pie and ice cream and more pie. But inevitably, God allows it so that I remember that the physical pain that comes at like 6 p.m. on Thursday where you're like, I should not have eaten so much. This is painful. That is a spiritual lesson. As, as you choose to live under the service of your fleshly desires, there will come a time very quickly after the trial period ends when you feel overindulged and you feel full and you'll want to vomit. And it's a spiritual lesson in the body will overindulge. And so will the lustly desires. And so what Peter is saying is think differently now. In your suffering, do not use a pain or a trial or a tribulation as an excuse to just give in and stop living for God. Choose the will of God. So what is the will of God? That is the million dollar question that all believers want to know. And I will point out something we've already pointed out because Peter has stated in chapter two very clearly, this is the will of God. There are times throughout scripture where the Holy Spirit through the word says this is is the will of God. There is prescribed will of God. And then, of course, what we're all after is the specific will of God. What does God want from me? What are the good works that God has prepared beforehand for me and my family and my kids? And what I'll say is it's probably best to start with the prescribed will of God, the, the, the will of God that is clearly revealed through scripture. And as you get closer to hearing the power of God's voice in his word, you will get closer to hearing the power of God's voice in prayer and through counsel and through the ways that God will direct you by the shepherd hearing the voice of, or the sheep hearing the voice of the shepherd. So I'll quickly share with you times where the word says, here's God's will. Romans chapter 12, verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Armor yourselves with a renewed mind. Do not think exactly how the world thinks. This is Paul's way of writing, be in exile. 
be a pilgrim. Don't blend into society, but be holy and set apart by thinking differently. It starts with the philosophy, and then what does he say? That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the first Peter chapter two, will of God. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The will for God for all who believe is to not return reviling for reviling, but when you are persecuted, you bless your enemy. When there is a person that is against the beliefs that you have in Christ, you do good to them. That's for all of you. How that looks will be specific. And then there's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what we've been talking about, the ceasing of sin is part of the will of God in cleansing you that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to process his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is, again, the word saying, here's God's will for your life. Don't be overrun by the lusts of your flesh. That you would actually no longer be a slave to the master of your carnal instincts. That's the will of God. And then he gives a specific example. You want to know one of the great ways you can abstain from lustly flesh? Stop living in sexual immorality. And so no doubt, the, 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 an audience our size, there's probably someone who has been praying for the will of God, I can tell you right now. Stop living with your boyfriend or girlfriend and having sex outside of marriage. That's the will of God for your life. Start there. And be obedient enough to, to, to allow that belief to turn into a behavior and trust that God will continue to reveal his, word, his will to you. And now we have... 1 Thessalonians again, for all of us, this is the will of God. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. So be encouraged. The will of God, you can fall under the will of God as you sit around your table and you give thanks to God. And you have a general attitude. It says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You have, the, the will of God is for us to be so hopeful and full of thanksgiving and trust in God that we're a people who rejoice always. We're not a people who go up and down like a volatile stock market. Whether or not we can rejoice depends on our circumstances. The will of God is that we'd be so confident in the living hope that we have that goes beyond the grave, we're rejoicing people. We're, we're a people that trust in God so much that it's not a weekly gathering where you listen to the word and that's your relationship with God. The will of God is that you'd have a relationship with him. You'd pray all the time. You'd pray in the morning. You'd give thanks to him in the afternoon. And the will of God is that in every detail of your life, you thank him. And that can be difficult in trial and suffering. It requires you faith to say this, God, thank you for the things that I can clearly see as a blessing to my life right now. And God, thank you in advance for the things that I, I'm just not seeing quite yet. Thank you for whatever you're going to do to work all things together for my good in your glory because I love you and I trust you and I know you've got a purpose in this. The will of God is for us to have a general heart and an attitude of faith. Practice these ones and really trust in the will of God as revealed in his word 
And you will begin to live out a very specific will of God calling on your life. That's the confidence that you can have in trusting God. And of course, there is now a, a more specific list that Peter would say, have a renewed mind of how you're living your life. If, if you're actually living for the will of God, if you're actually repenting from fleshly desires, then be done with the old way. Look what he says in the next verse. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles, acting like non-believers. When we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Earlier, we looked at Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, and it said, you know, people who are in Christ crucify the flesh. And there's the, then there's a whole sermon series on what it means to crucify the flesh. Here's one answer. Stop hanging out with sin. Stop seeking areas or weekend gatherings or friend groups specific where at the very center of it all is something that's going to require you to do the will of a non-believer and not the will of God. He says, you've lived enough in your old life. And as you read this entire letter, you can always go back into the first century context and you read a list like this and you could just, just imagine you're in first century pagan Rome, you're trying to be a believer and there, there's just sexuality, there's bathhouses and there's prostitution, there's orgies and there's, they're just partying and it's like a first century thing. And yet, you read this list, and clearly, 2,000 years later, it's not like Peter was calling out the Roman Empire. He was calling out humanity. This is just the list that lives inside of us. In all of these, we just have to, in every way, you leave this sanctuary, and this list wait for, waits for you. Lewdness, just sexually suggestive everything. And that is just the way of our world right now. Sex sells and it's in your face everywhere you go. Uh, he says lust. That is, in a, in a simple phrase, that's just the hookup culture that many of you have been saved from. Some of you are wrestling with. But the, the, the reality is, is it's, it's just alive now as it ever was. Drunkenness. I saw a t-shirt that said, work hard, drink hard. I thought, no, don't do that. You don't want to work hard and drink hard. That's, that's not going to be good for you. And uh, of course, there is a challenge. You come to Christ and then you've you still got the t-shirt written on your heart. It's like, that's just what I know. Revelries. The idea that there's just parties and dancing. And, and uh, I have, I have a, a routine. Every Sunday morning, I go downtown early in the morning. And sometimes it's early enough to where the Saturday night class is getting, getting out just as the Sunday morning class is getting in. And it's just a little... There's just little trails of revelry. And, you know, it's like cars that didn't make it home. They're parked downtown. And, and, and sometimes there's people didn't make it home. They got the hair up. And, you know, it's like, wow, that, that is a, it, it's 4 a.m. And you're still wearing a dress. So either you're a weird jogger or you didn't make it home last night. And it's just as true now as it ever was. It's just clubbing lifestyle. It's just Friday night. And we send our kids to college and they get a red cup. And they get to learn how to take part in revelries. And you probably have a reference point to some of it. Uh, 
abominable idolatries, as if that is, you know, you get the picture of first century and it's like, well, we got rid of that one. We don't, no one goes home and, you know, burns incense to actual statues. And yet, maybe now more than ever, it's like we elevate these people as though they're many gods in our day. And we buy what they tell us to buy and we follow them around and whatever they're doing, we just want to know about it. We want to know who's dating who in this upper class of celebrity idols. And that is part of humanity. That's not first century. That's not 2023. That's just inside of us are these idol factories. And what Peter is saying is, you had enough of that in your old life. It's time to be renewed and not live in this middle road with Christ where you believe in some of his teachings and you have some of his philosophy, but you also hold on to some of these things where you can get in where you fit in. And then we realize that Christ said, actually, the, the way is very narrow. And the path to destruction is very broad. And there's going to have to come a point in your life in the pursuit of the will of God where you actually reject your old life. To be a believer is to have a past life. To be a believer is to have your own calendar where it says BC, before Christ, and you look different and you're going through a transformation process and you're no longer living in both worlds. You have a, a, a renewed mind for what you're actually living for. And so with those three things in mind, we come to the million dollar question is then and now, this is a challenging thing. It's challenging to go through your life and live as narrow and as focused from suffering to the way that we wrestle with and reject sin to the reality of who we serve. As you leave this sermon, the real world awaits. Some of you are listening to this. You're like, um, I've got a, a workplace and a college dorm and neighbors. And uh, what are the implications of me actually being a Christ renewed mind in all of these things? Well, let me tell you in advance because it's nothing new. Peter says, in regards to these things, if you actually live for the will of God and you no longer take part in a lifestyle that God is saving you from, here's what will happen. They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood, a dissipation, speaking evil of you. So this is not new. As you become a believer in Christ and you're thinking through, what are my friends going to think? My coworkers are going to think I joined a cult. My family members are going to think that I'm a weirdo. It's in the word. They think you're strange. It's part of the plan. And they think you're so strange they may speak evil of you. As you get the invite to the revelries and you say, I'm not into that anymore. As you get the jokes to the lewdness and you're not laughing anymore. Now you've gone from someone who was just absent to someone that, oh, are you holier than thou? Do you think we're going to hell? What, is this, what are you trying to say about us because of you? And this is the number one challenge that Peter is navigating for these people because he says time and time again, it's not if, it's when. Being a follower of Christ takes you through a life of transformation that is filled with so much light and so much before and after that you actually will be at odds with a past lifestyle. And here's the blessing. Here's where, where Peter is going to give us the actual thing that we're afraid of and how to overcome it. 
the thing we're afraid of is that we live in a culture, as much as our culture wants to be relativism and it wants to say, you know, no judgment, our only moral standard is consent, do whatever you want and don't judge anyone. We all walk on eggshells because the world is full of judges. And everything you believe and anything you put your name on and everything that you say and the clothes that you wear and the places that you visit and the restaurants you eat at and the churches you attend, all of it is giving someone ammo to judge you. And there's maybe nothing worse in our day and no worse judgment that you could receive than to believe in a living God who created the heavens and the earth and you are now subject to him as a bondservant. He owns your life and he has put you on a path to share his glory wherever you go. And what's more is that part of that ambassadorship that he's called you to be a representative of his love is to call people from repentance to sin and unrighteousness towards righteousness because there is a narrow way and there's only one savior and his name is Jesus and he's the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father in heaven except by him. So you, you're, you're all of a sudden the worst people now. You've ne there's no greater judgment than someone who would be so narrow in our day. We live in a world of judges and your life will be judged. And here's the joy. Look how Peter ends this they will give an account to him who is ready to judge. The living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but living according to God in the spirit. Here is the gospel good news. Peter says, one of the reasons the gospel is preached, for this reason the gospel is preached, that they would be judged. Inside of the human heart is a desire to represent and reflect the image of a creator. And our creator is not only savior, he's not only the fountain and the source of all love and mercy and grace, he is also the ultimate judge. The reason that our culture is full of judge is because you can't replace God. You can try to, but you will become a God. And you will become in your own heart the judge and justice of the world around you. And the gospel good news is that it does not remove the actual judge from the throne. This culture, this church, this city, your life will be held accountable to the judge of judges. And every single one of us, you have now heard a message preached. You now fall under the responsibility to respond. You've been given an invitation to renew your mind, to have a new way to see the world, to, to freely receive the philosophy of Christ that there is purpose in suffering, that there is a call to reject sin that is part of the problem with the evil of our world and to also serve the God who made you. And now, all of you, and anyone who hears the gospel preached, are accountable to the judge. And so is the world that we live in. The world that will judge you for what you believe, 
the college students, the co-workers, the non-believing neighbors, the, the anti-God culture, they can remove the judge from their heart, but they cannot remove him from our world. And you have to answer the question, whose judgment do you fall under? And this is why it's the gospel. You fall under the judgment of the world and you will live with a lack of true identity. You will serve the will of the Gentiles. You will struggle to cease from sin. You will struggle to actually suffer unto the glory of God. But you live unto the judgment of God and you go right back to where we started from. You fall under the beautiful free invitation that Christ died on your behalf. That in all of the ways that you and I and every single person have fallen short of the perfect will of God, and we have fallen short in our ceasing of sin, and we have served two masters at times, there is a price for all of the ways that we have fallen short that has been paid on our behalf. Christ suffered for us. And when we meet our judge face to face, he will see in us, he who knew no sin became sin on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, and he will see in us the righteousness of Christ. That is the gospel. I guess in closing for sake of time, because of course we could preach the message forever. He says this message was preached to the living and to the dead. This is a message that goes out and it will outlive you. I think as I read that, I realized the older I get, in a strange way, the older you get, the more you realize how short life is. When you're young, you hear a message like this and you think, oh, maybe. I'm having fun and I like revelries. <laughs> God is great, but I'll, I'll get back to him later. And Peter said, for this reason, remember that this message goes out to those who have heard it and died and now they are accountable to the one who judges righteously. And so for all of us, be in a response to this, redeem the time. For those of you who believe, he says, you've had enough of the old time. With the time that you have left, choose the will of God. Have a renewed vision for what God is doing in your life. Have a renewed vision for how God is cleansing you and calling you to something that he wants to do for his glory and your good. And for those of you, no doubt, who came and you're hearing a message and you didn't expect to listen this much, <laughs> the message will outlive you. You will soon be a person who heard the gospel, who is now in the past. Your flesh will die and you will stand before God. And we're about to hold in our hands the suffering of Christ, his body, his blood given for our life. For those of you who believe, we take it and we're renewed to have the mind of Christ as we hold his body and his blood. For those of you who come and hear this message as an invitation to
to have a renewed mind and to see this whole world through the lens of Christ who died for you, take it. Believe in the gospel and take the, the bread and the cup with us.